Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. As conversations around land acknowledgments and decolonizing the institutional structures and curriculum continue in higher education, Lee Patel offers a deeper dive into these important issues. Her recent book, No Study Without Struggle, Confronting Settler Colonialism in Higher Education from Beacon Press in 2021, Uh, outlines the intertwining of study and struggle. She exposes the structural issues and intersections of settler colonialism in higher education and offers ways to go beyond empty land acknowledgments and toward real transformation. Lee Patel is professor of Educational Foundations, Organizations, and Policy in the University of Pittsburgh's School of Education. On our podcast, we have been committed in past episodes to exploring the third university with Wayne Yang, decolonizing curriculum with Maha Bailey and Angela Yarber, a decolonizing resolution by undergraduate students and their struggle to get their college on board, land grab universities, and critical university studies with Tavarius Baldwin and Roderick Ferguson. Patel draws on several of these scholars and provides a current framework for the necessary conversations in higher education concerning what she calls, quote, the optics of diversity, equity, and inclusion, end quote. Patel is a cultural worker and has done research on the injustices experienced by youth held at the southern U.S. border, centering these voices. In this podcast, Patel addresses a range of issues from decolonizing the university to building social movements with popular education to intersectional practices of equity. Patel guides us toward discovering where are the spaces we need to be in to engage decolonial practices. Welcome Lee Patel to Nothing Never Happens. Thank you so much for being here. Um, We're just, it's been a real gift to be able to dive into your work these last few days as we get ready to have this conversation. Um, So as we were getting, as we were conferring on email about what we might talk about, um, you said to us, I would like to speak with you for the podcast about how intertwined study and struggle are. And you say another way of putting this is that one of the organic and crucial locations of study is in struggle. Um, I'd love to just begin with hearing your reflections on that, which of course that principle um, and commitment has been so core to your work. Um, Tell us about what that means to you and how, how how you come to this work. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, Thank you for inviting me. Lucia and Tina, it's been such a pleasure um, catching up with so many podcast episodes as I joke to you. I'm like, I'm so angry. All of my friends are like, why didn't you tell me about this podcast? So I'm, I'm grateful also for the public pedagogy that is this podcast. So I am um, in thinking about study and struggle and, and as an educator who is always fascinated by learning. Um, 
so there are so many things that are packaged and sold that pretend to know way more about learning and study than we actually know. But there are some things that we know. And one of the things that I wanted to uh, be able to lift up um, that has been taught to me that I've um, been helped to learn is there has never been a social movement without political education being involved. So there's internal political education that comes into formation in various different ways. Um, it involves different people in different times and places and settings and all of those specifics are, are germane to how those formations happen. And there's always some form of political education when people get together and are opposing something or trying to change something. What is that thing that we're trying to change? And what is our theory of change when it comes to that? And that often is at the heart of internal political education. Often at the heart of political education is when we find out like, for example, like, oh, okay, we have some things about anti-racism unlocked, but patriarchy is really flourishing in our social movements. So what are we going to do about that? And that's another form of usually internal political education, internal transformation. Um, as of late, people might be calling that internal healing and internal necessary rest and hopefully referencing Audre Lorde appropriately and Joy James as well. And then there's this external public pedagogy that so often comes out of social movements or social struggles. There's a lot of different ways we can term this. Um, so I wanna try to term it as broadly as possible so that whoever might be listening might think like, oh, this one that I know about, oh, like when they shut down brunch, what was that about? Um, and the shutting down of brunch or the shutting down or the sitting in a chancellor's office or a, um, a land grab, a land back sign. And that movement that also has been um, so beautifully profiled in this podcast series, that is a public pedagogy. That is a way of shifting imagination and hopefully shifting material realities. So I think a lot and I try to pay attention to this intertwined, very organic relationship between study and struggle. And as a formal educator, um, I've been teaching in uh, places of formal education. And um, Wayne Yang advised me from a friend of his that we are elders. We are elders in training. So I'm 52. I've been teaching in places of formal education since I was early 20s. So for a while. And formal education has always been this place of um, radical pedagogy and, and heartbreak for me because formal education does what it's designed to do in a stratified society, in a settler state. It stratifies and divides and it tells human beings things about themselves, often quite bad things about themselves. Um, so it, it does its work that way. And I and that's always kind of heartbreaking to me. And the classroom is a place of solace, is a place of agitation, is a place of imagination. And I think I just love learning so much that I just refuse to yield it to formal education. Oh, thanks for that a lot. And you mention and use a lot in your work, um, Robin D.G. Kelly's uh, Freedom Dreams and on the Black um, 
radical imagination. So where are the spaces in the in the midst of these settler colonialist uh, institutions that we're in? Uh, where are the spaces you would tell us that we need to explore, uh, sit in, in order to have radical imagination um, mm -hmm. and, and confronting uh, settler colonialism? And, you mm -hmm. know, what are some of the tactics that you would advise? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, so one of the things that, and I'm, I'm just going to speak kind of specifically first about teacher education. Um, I know, I think, uh, Tina, you were mentioning at your school, I don't know if the education school department is now a thing of the past, but it was in the process of becoming a thing of the past. Um, and that's happening in many universities. It's in the process of becoming a thing of the past as as a kind of, well, not kind of, as, as late capitalism finds ways for departments and schools to always be in competition with each other and to force each one to pay its own debt that's created out of nowhere. Um, so that, that's, that's been pretty brutal on schools of education. And um, it's a strange place that I find myself in defending schools of education because of that heartbreak that I was mentioning earlier. We, we've been the place um, that has anointed and made possible the teacher demographic to be what it is in this nation, which is still overwhelmingly white, female, middle class, more like upper middle class. We've been the place that has said, here you go, go to the state with this degree and you can get a certificate to teach. But teacher education programs are also one of the most fertile and, and beautiful areas where we might actually read Freedom Dreams by Robin D. G. Kelly, where we invite people in to, yeah, yes, be a teacher and always be a learner and always be working towards a vision of society that has life and relation at the center. Like that is always available, no matter how late we are in late stage capitalism, which we just, somebody said to me the other day, like, oh, I'm so tired of it being late capitalism. When is it going to be over? I'm like, well, it's kind of busy eating itself right now. So it's, it's not quite over yet. Um, and there are still those, in fact, there are perhaps even more urgent or um, perhaps more open opportunities to say, all right, so this empire is eating itself and that is happening globally what can we read in teacher education programs that help us be answerable to society and not just implement a lesson plan that assumes a mythic norm of a student? So that's from like my home base in, in higher education um, in terms of departments. Um, that's, that's usually where I've been situated in, in schools of education as teacher education. And also policy studies. This is a fantastic time to be reading policy studies and be analyzing them as, as we've been doing for a while. Critical policy analysis has been a genre for a while. And now's a really good time to remind ourselves that we critique in order to imagine and make into existence better future worlds, that the better future worlds happen in the now. We have to do things now for those future worlds to come into existence. And they're partially happening now as well. So a third university as possible is also such a gift to be reading and be reminding ourselves as well as Ngugi Wantiongo's um, decades-long teaching that the decolonial is always present in the colonial. 
so that kind of for me gives this opening of of always having the project of coloniality which has a little bit different set of metrics than settler colonialism i can talk about that if you want um but that the the project of coloniality has has always had a companion of the decolonial of the abolition of the freedom struggles and um since you brought up robin's work tina i i, I found it really interesting in a a talk that Robin gave, I believe, a couple of years ago at the start of the pandemic, he noted that the book that he's asked to, at that time, what he was asked to speak to most frequently was not Freedom Dreams, but Hammer and Ho. And I think that has something to do with the how Hammer and Ho historicizes how people can come together with a range of literacy levels and can do that with the tradition of the black radical tradition and, and moving with that and not to the exclusion of people who are not black i think that's i guess that's part of the i would guess that's part of the reasons why robin is asked was asked to be speaking about hammer and ho so much was because here's this communist formation they came into place in the south in the early 1900s and was composed of majority of black people because we know that is where freedom struggles have been uh, partially and will always be partially and included a variety of literacy levels. So also uh, gestures to us, like you can do this where you are. You can do this with lots of people. None of it belongs to people with degrees. Uh, actually, especially none of it belongs to people with degrees. So I, I love that that's a book that he's been asked to speak to quite a bit. And to me, that also opens up something that I try to, um, I try to communicate consistently that knowledge is everywhere, that my most powerful teachers, certainly there are some um, with PhDs who have been pivotal in my political education and my remaining human. And my most important teacher to this day remains my mother. So I, I try to invite that into every space in the university that I can, because it's, it's, that's a praxis of also not seeding that knowledge is behind paywalls so when i refuse to see learning to universities i also try to uh, articulate that tactic um it's like that it's just behind it's behind a paywall that does not mean that it's not knowledge and, and more powerfully perhaps the literature reviews that doctoral students are that's part of the indoctrination is to write a literature review and cite things that are behind paywalls there are valuable things behind paywalls, but that is not the enormity of knowledge, not even close. So I hope that gets to your question. Yeah, I mean, I have like, I'm like writing down all the questions I want to ask you as a follow-up. I so appreciate how your work deprovincializes um, knowledge um, and roots and recognizes the already existing roots and practices of knowledge creation that are not only not exclusive to um, schools slash banks, um, but also, but, but perhaps um, 
sometimes sometimes the institutions were part of the schools were part of militate against radical knowledge formations. Um, okay, so I think that in that preamble, I, was, I decided what I'm going to ask you next, knowing that there is more time for me to ask you more questions. Um, we love talking about concrete practices um, in in classes, in syllabi assignments. Can you give us an example or two of ways that you are building in um, opportunities, lacuna for um, insurgent knowledge formation and creation in the work that you do as a professor? Yes, yes, would love to. Um, it's one of the things that has um, helped me main, like figure out my, my consistent ambivalence with higher education, my consistent ambivalence with university is, this space of the classroom, the teaching. So I appreciate the in invitation. Also appreciate in the podcast episodes, hearing the specificity of what people do with intention. So um, in a, a 2015 section of critical race theory and intersectionality that I, I also wanted to mention, like it was quite a struggle to get that course to be named a course. Like I had to meet with many people which I'll just index mostly as um, kind of babysitting whiteness um, to get this book, this course to be on the books. And I chose that title because it was so well-established, not only obviously in legal studies, but it had been well-established in the field of education, but it was still kind of a struggle that was about territory, which is an articulation of settler colonialism as well. So that shows how it's, that's an example of its structure. So that was that was kind of a struggle to even get this pretty uh, quotidian kind of everyday course on the books at that university. But when it was on the books and actually had that title before it had been named like Contemporary Issues in Education, which, you know, just irritated mildly all of the students because like, this is not contemporary. What we're learning about is centuries upon centuries. So in that course, about halfway through the course, um, the midterm assignment is to um, apply something that we've learned about critical race theory, about intersectionality, what we've learned about intersectionality, obviously from Kimberly Crenshaw, but also from the Combahee River Collective and why that collective of black women, of black lesbians came into formation in Boston in the 1970s. What was happening at that time? Well, why did they name themselves the Combahee River Collective? So we've studied these things. We've also studied settler colonialism because I knew I was not going to get a course in named settler colonialism in 2015 in that school of education. Like it's, it's now it's that's said with some frequency, but it was not in education so much then. So in that course, the midterm assignment was um, to use a piece of paper I chose a legal size piece of paper because it's just slightly bigger than the letter size. So eight and a half by 14 on one side of it. Choose a thing that is not just like a conversation between you and like an argument between you and your sibling, for example, but something that's a little bit in the public. Depict that and apply some analysis to it that we've learned in the course. And wow, what people came up with absolutely blew me away. Um, people used the beginning place of the eight and a half by 14 inch piece of paper and made three dimensional projects to, oh, did to depict colorism. Somebody analyzed um, worldwide wrestling foundation, like somebody analyzed that as a trope and used critical race 
analyses with that. Um, another person, I mentioned 2015, because this was the time when um, I believe this, and I'm going to, I might get this NFL football player's name wrong. So then rather than get his name wrong, I'm just going to use a, a place marker for the moment. I believe it was Marshawn Lynch. But this football player um, had said explicitly at a, at a, public conference, a, a media conference said, I'm just here so I get paid. So one of the students wrote on that eight and a half by 14 piece of paper, like, I'm just here so I get the grade. And I, it just made me so happy. I can't even tell you because it was a read of what we were talking about, power agency. And it was, it was succinct right on that veil. I was like, oh, that is so beautiful. So one of the things I try to do in my courses is leave quite open um, create some parameters and say, these are enabling constraints. You can do whatever you wish within these enabling constraints. Apply some analysis from our course, restrict yourself to this size-ish, um, and say what your analysis is. And the other thing I might mention about um, concrete uh, practices that's been really um, helpful to me is I never plan out a syllabus in advance because I've I've yet to meet me as a learner with that group of people. Uh, most of whom I haven't yet met previously. We don't know what's going to roll out in the world week to week. Um, so I can roll out the first part of it, but then I have to keep constructing it. Um, and so that's a one version of a living syllabus. Many other people have other different versions of that, but those two practices, um, having enabling constraints and, and having a living syllabus um, helps me, I think, to come back to your question Lucia, which is such a beautifully articulated one, helps to create spaces within, creates to design spaces within. It is possible to radicalize ourselves. It is possible to interrogate for the purpose, not of sounding smart, but for the purpose of mutual freedom building constantly. Can I add a story? Please. Your, I love your I love your um your half a sheet of paper assignment. It reminds me of when I taught a class on religion and capitalism at Yale. Um, one of the assignments was that they had to read a management like handbook. Um, so there are all of these handbooks for managers and bosses about how to like empathetically manage your employees. And all of the, many of these students are going off into like consulting and i banking gigs. So I was like, okay, read this, read a, read one of these, man, like empathy, uh, empathy for bosses, um, books, and then create a critique of it. And the critique could be anything, um, but they had to justify why the form was matched to the content of their critique. And yes. so I got pictures on, I got drawings. Um, somebody did. Uh, presentation in the style of the presentation he had given to interview at Bain um, about the, about like empathetic management um, and uh, being, what was it? Um, radical candor, that's the name of this management book, which is, you have to be radically candor, not like a mean asshole boss, but you can fire people by being empathetic to them. Um, this poor child had a, 
crisis at the end of the semester because he had taken his bonus from the management company that he had gotten hired at and and wanted to figure out how to get out of there. And so like these sort of thinking with forms, you, I know you talk a lot, Lee, about um, enabling constraints. And I just, um, I am so on board with the radical syllabus full of enabling constraints yeah. for the community. Yeah, thank you so much for that story, Lucia. I should also um, mention that Brent Davis and Dennis Sumara have written about enabling constraints, as I remember to do citations correctly and remind myself. Yeah, I think one of the other things that I love about that story, there's two things, there's a lot of things, but I'll just name two. One is that uh, I've, I have experienced that, you know, do whatever you want, do it in the format that you want, but give a little thought to the format that you want, um, will be like, cool for lots of people and for other people like will be terrifying because it lifts up that there's a difference between studenting and learning and definitely those two are distinct from designing so that that's a thing that happens i think that people um encounter themselves as students sometimes and not maybe realize like ah learning is actually really uncomfortable and hard and I have to make intentional decisions. And I can't like ask like, what font and how long and do you have a rubric? You're not in the school of education unless somebody's throwing a rubric at you. Like, and I know I never have a rubric because why would I create the basement and ceiling for anybody? And the other thing that I love about that example is that so often I think in the work that, that you both do is I've as I've studied up on your work, and I think the work that many of the people that um, you've invited onto the podcast, as teachers in universities, as, as some of them are, um, which, which is not everybody, which is another thing that I love about the podcast, um, but as educators of many different forms, people will be in community with other people, and the example you just talked about, Lucia, as people are slowly breaking up with oppressions that they've experienced. And Tressie McMillan Cotton has this beautiful short essay on um, breaking up with whiteness has always been the end game. And I love that she also writes so well, like I don't she's like, I don't really have an interest in writing about whiteness or breaking up with whiteness, but it's become so prevalent, at least in the time that she was writing this. She's like, but I, I just need to say this, like that's always been the end game. Whatever DEI thing is happening, the end game is always breaking up with intertwined oppressions. That's always the end game, which to me is also a way of saying the end game has always been liberation for all because there is no such thing as partial liberation. Yeah, I love this conversation about um, concrete practices in the classroom, and I want to I want to get back to that too. But this seems like a good segue into talking about um, diversity, equity, inclusion programs and your critique of them, which I think is, um, you know, your problem with diversity, where you say diversity is a move on the part of whiteness, you know, to recenter and reinstate it. Um, also, you served as an associate dean of equity and justice at Pitt. So this is the basic, how did you get out with your soul intact kind of question? And, um, um, you know, the, how did That's you- the best version of the question I've ever heard. 
I sometimes have that question. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. that's a fair question too. And how do you know who told yeah. you? Yeah. How did you do this work? And I mean, if the university is not out to at the academy, as you say, and, and what some of your writing is not out to save us, it can do great harm. Um, how did how did you navigate um, those that terrain? The institute. I, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Bill. I, I think it's absolutely fair, like a triplet of questions like how did you get out with your soul intact? Is your soul intact? And how do you know? Um, I think those those actually all go to are in enmeshed with each other. So um, I was able to do work as an associate dean that felt a lot like the work that I did as as a as an educator in creating these partial syllabi. So I uh, myself and a person named Courtney Ross, who's not going to like that I named her, but we've we've become comfortable with me naming her more because she was crucial. Um, we would write, we never knew what to call them. They were memos. Um, they were, they could have been in the form of zines. Sometimes we would just felt like the shit leaf thinks you should know about. Um, we just, we never knew what to call them, but we would come up with basically really little mini political education essays for largely for faculty. And it, to me, thinking about this question, it it helped that I had been in the academy for a couple of decades by this point, because when I was getting my PhD, I, I never intended to become a professor. And, and that's important. It's an important part of my history to mention in, in this answer, because it took me a while to learn this culture of people who had always wanted to become professors or who actually left being a professor to become an administrator because they didn't like teaching that much and they didn't like other things that I, I actually love about the job um, but primarily is teaching but teaching faculty is never a thing that I desired but I also understood it to be a thing some political education has to be done and so when I um a scholar of the impact and of the just the way that, that Sandy Grande walks, moves in the world. When Sandy Grande says to me, Lee, it's really important that people like you do this job. I show up, but for a little while. I knew it was going to be temporary because that is part of how I you know my spirit can take it. One of the things that helped me was I stayed teaching. Like I, I was uh, a couple months into it and I told my dean, who also didn't micromanage me, that's a huge thing. My dean did not make me put pit logos all over everything, including myself. My dean, when I wrote the first one of these memos, I asked um, Valerie, and her name is Valerie Kimlock. I asked Valerie, like, do you want to read this? And she said, no, I want you to do your job. So I was not micromanaged. That makes a huge difference. That's a big departure for most people who have those kinds of jobs. And I started by, I mentioned the fact that I didn't want to become a professor because at the time I remember my advisor who was a lovely, lovely person um, named Tom Bean. And I had decided to take a policy position because in the process of getting my PhD, I thought I have never met such a concentration of neurotic people in my life. And I don't understand what you are all arguing about, but you are all mad and you all have stories about each other. Like I'm getting out of here for a little while. So in a really, a, quite a caring move, Tom told me like, 
but as a professor, you get paid to think. And I remember retorting to him really quickly, and which is um, sometimes how I am, like, what the hell do you think other people are doing who aren't professors? So it took me a while to learn this culture of like, we get paid to think and we have a life of the mind, which of course, like, Lucia, I love that you're shaking your head. No, because, because no, that's not actually what capitalism, racial capitalism, ableism, patriarchy, that none of it ever had in mind a life of the mind. Higher education has, has been an apparatus of the state to bring in some theory from Al Fuster here. Um, and I really quite prefer how Joy James writes about higher education. So going into that associate dean role, I brought all of that in with me. I'm like, I'm just saying the same stuff now to faculty, which means a different starting point for many of them. So I say, I wrote to them like, here's how you can, you can include this in your syllabus. You can include an invitation and you actually should for these reasons. Like I had learned the culture a little bit by then and learned as an educator, how to say like, here's why you should do this. You should include in your syllabus something that invites your students to tell you if they are housing insecure, food insecure, if they are health care insecure. And many faculty, um, I always received a lot of feedback, mostly positive, because mostly people didn't choose to tell me the things that they hated about what I wrote to them. Um, and the things that, that we talked about, we had book clubs, so we, we had those things as well. A lot of professors I appreciated told me, I sat back in my chair with that one, meaning that one where I uh, talked about a syllabus that is grounded in justice and what that might look like, some different ways that might look, including statements to students about um, saying if they are insecure in any of the basic needs. And I appreciated those professors who said, I sat back with that one because I didn't know, I don't know what I would do if a student told me that. I was like, cool, cool. Here's a bunch of resources where you can turn. And, and, and this is an, an argument that I think is useful to bring in here. As associate dean, I also got to be in lots of rooms to advocate for trying to meet students' basic needs, you know, to advocate for like we're we're actually actively making people more precarious in their lives. So it would be good if we stopped doing those things and provided some more support for basic needs. And I think this really great argument with one of the vice provosts, who again, I like a great deal. And I said something about, um, you should have, we should say in our students' basic needs statements that um, students, meaning human beings, should have access to safe housing. It said that already. And I said, it should say um, free from abuse. And this vice provost said, we, we cannot write that down. And I and I was genuinely bewildered. Like, why can't we write that down? And the answer was, well, because we can't guarantee it. I'm like, well, the world can't guarantee that quite obviously, but it is a principle that we should stand behind, particularly during a pandemic. We should be aware that people are being told to shelter in place with their abuser. We should be cognizant of this. And if we cannot say it out loud, there's something wrong with us. So I think there's a certain amount of um, knowing I wasn't going to be in the position for too long. I don't, I don't aspire. It wasn't like this wasn't a step on the ladder of anything for me. This was like an, an interlude of the kind of work. And let me see how I do the work in this role. Um, but also, you know, maintaining pleasant fantasies of like, I'll just get a different job. You know, you can get mad at me. I'll get a different job. 
I think it's a healthy thing to have in my, it's, it's helped me with my ambivalence towards higher education. Like I'll just go back to the teaching seventh grade. But um, I, that helped and I, and I loved, I'm very proud of the work that I did in that role and, and wouldn't want to do it again because it's exhausting. It's so much work. Um, there's a huge salary that comes with it, but it is being on every committee possible. Yeah, I always think that like the my my friend and colleague from Yale Bench Hansfield um what said in a like what does it mean to do transformative justice from a location inside of universities and what does it mean to use that language and is that just handing over a concept to get co-opted? Um asked a question at the end of this panel, and I'm not going to remember exactly how they said it, but like, should movements have a self-destruct button? And at what point do you push it? Um, and I think part of what I heard in that question is this sort of distinction between um, what are we doing strategically right now together in a liberation struggle versus has that become secondary to thinking, oh, if I just climb a little higher in the ladder or create institutional stability for one more year, will um, that that will then later serve this end of liberation? And so I think about that in this sort of administrative life, like it's temporary and maybe some of the freedom and the uh, sort of capacity to do to, to, to say things and do things that otherwise might not have been, um, that weren't necessarily so welcome, um, yeah. comes from a sort of bounded and an enabling constraint of like, this is temporary. I am doing, I am doing this for a time and there are so many other possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, um, I appreciate that. Go ahead, Tina, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. And the master's tools, you know, Alder Lord. It, yes. it, it goes, that's sort of the dilemma that you talk about, right? But yeah, if we don't I, I, people in those roles, then who are critically minded all the way through the work, um, then we then we lose. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I think I would be, remiss if I also didn't, um, you know, thank Ruth Simmons for the work that Ruth Simmons did for 11 years as the president of Brown University. It That matters materially, that matters um, to some degree in different ways on every campus. And it, it meant something when Prudence Carter was the dean of the premier public school of education at, at Berkeley. It meant something when Valerie announced her deanship at Pitt. These these stepping into these roles means a great deal. Uh, Naila Swad Nasir, who's the current president of the Spencer Foundation, this means something. And the Spencer Foundation, for example, has seen an, a skyrocketing in applications that um, I politely said to Naila not long ago. In, in their report, they credited to some things. And I'm like, I think that has something to do with you as well, being the president, because many of us advising graduate students who graduate students who are doing projects that focus on the processes through which uh, human beings and life forms are alienated and dispossessed of their relationships to each other. I'm like, now is the time for you to apply to the Spencer Foundation for that. It always is the right time, but this is a super right time for you to apply. 
So it matters when people step into these roles and bring with them a set of politics that are theirs that are somehow connected to liberation. Um, and I say somehow because I don't know all of those for those individuals. Um, it matters immensely that we don't confuse when people do step into these roles that now that school is a freedom school. No, it's not. Um, it's still a university. So it's either a corporation or a bank, depending upon how much money it has and how it protects its wealth. So it's that's politically very important not to get too excited, particularly when um, women and femme of color, um, people who are open about their disabilities step into these roles. It's, it's very, this is where Sarah Ahmed's teachings are crucial that we not, we not get too excited about the, um, about celebrity actually. And I think that's one of the reasons why I keep bringing up Joy James in the conversation as well as Joy James's analysis of Asafa Shakur is essential to understanding revolution and, um, radical presence that overrides um, the, these attempts to be pulled into a capitalist project of celebrities. I, I think those are, I'm, I'm indebted to all of the women that I named and their presence in those positions did not make those places freedom schools. I feel like now this is not on the list of questions we talked about before, but I feel moved to ask it, which is, how how do you sustain yourself um, and your community in your in your struggle? Um, and what have you learned about that over the years? Uh, I, I appreciate the question. I feel that like this is one that um, is so needed and has always been needed. Um, I think in a time of just before our session today, I was. Um, doing some writing as I try to maintain that appointment with myself. And I was writing about what happens to a society that mass dislocates grief. Um, so, because that's what we're doing, we have been doing for quite some time, um, as in centuries, but certainly it's been acute during the pandemic, the, the denial that the pandemic is still ongoing. How do I take care of myself and my community? I have, um, you know, the, I've had the great fortune of being with my mom during the entire pandemic and caring for her as she cares for me. So um, I'm grounded in communal living in a way that I have not been grounded in uh, my entire life. And my mother grew up in communal living. My mother grew up in a rural um, village in India and she and I have had many conversations about the trade-off that migrants who were um, extracted out of nations and um, by choice or by capital were able to migrate themselves and though those distinctions are important and how they created, recreated their relations to family, to ancestry, to land. And when those relations often were clipped as a consequence of trading in communal living for the American dream, the American nightmare, that was a pretty bad trade-off, she and I have decided. So that's been a big part of how I have, at least in these past few years, I've been able to revisit communal living in ways that I know lots of people have not been able to, 
that resides on me being able to work remotely, that's huge. I've been able to live communally with my mother and intergenerationally because I have a job that has allowed me to work remotely. So as that window closes, I've actually been thinking about that exact question, which is how am I going to maintain my sense of self that is grounded in intergenerationality, is grounded in, in communal living and the fact that we traded it in, some by choice, some by seduction, some by allure, and some by then feeling the inability to actually do that American dream thing. So I try to stay, I, um, I appreciate the terming that um, Joe Dinion offered of staying on nodding terms with my own different relationships to the American dream, this, this fallacy, this hologram. That's part of my wellness is being kind to very older versions, younger versions of myself, and maybe versions to come who will who will continue to learn about communal living as I feel it kind of slipping from my grasp. I absolutely am made well and invited into wellness repeatedly by my community and education for liberation. I do not think I would have lasted. I'm quite sure actually I would not have lasted as an educator if I did not have that grounding in this organization that was started actually by uh, several still um, living and still quite impactful um, scholars, including Charles Payne, Teresa Perry, Lisa Delpit. Um, they were gathered at this humongous research conference for educators where like you know, thousands of ed research nerds descend upon some poor city and we were badges around three to four city blocks for about a week. And in a session, uh, Charles Payne, a historian of education, who's at Rutgers now, said, what good is any of the work that we're doing here if it's not materially helping and actually centering youth of color who are on, on the underside of all of this, to bring in a little bit of the way that Sylvia Winter might phrase coloniality. Um, being part of that has helped, has helped me um, remember that knowledge is everywhere, has that is the group uh, that has turned most intentionally to reckoning with the harm that happens in our communities. So that has given me a, a, a lifeline, a breath line, and a responsibility line to, to wellness in ways that um, you know, could never be a homework card or are appropriately complicated. Yes, um, thank you for that. And uh, there's one statement that you make in some article um, that I really that I wrote down because it really affected me. You said you just cannot be engaged in abolition work if you are not well. So I appreciate your grounding this in wellness and um, all the writing you've done on about your mom and your relationship with your mother is just ah uh, and. The relationality that ground that is the ground of all your work, um, not just with this community, but with youth. So uh, one of your books, um, Youth Held at the Border, which is uh, a huge issue for us, especially in the states right now uh, with our southern border um, and your focus on the dispossessed and, and marginalized youth. What? What are you learning from youth, uh, not only at the border, but um, 
uh, as you work, um, do work on student protest um, movements and, you know, what you learn from, and you mentioned Ella Baker and SNCC, which is one of my huh, main examples for, yeah, that's leadership because she got out of the way <laughs> and let them lead. So if you could tell us what, what are you learning? What have you learned from youth and what do you continue to learn from youth? Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate to um, be invited in uh, partially into many young people's lives. Um, and that book that you mentioned, um, Youth Held at the Border, is in, uh, has a special place in my heart because of the young people who I got to be part of their lives for several years um, because I had the structural places in my job at that university because I, I don't ever want to minimize how important, like if, if your university structures it so that you can spend time with people as part of a research agenda, that's a big deal. Lots of people don't have that structure. So I had that structure and it was rewarded um, because I've majored in journals have always been a writer. I don't know quite what I think about anything unless I write about it and then still change my mind after it. Those young people, all of whom were migrants, some of whom were undocumented, um, and all of whom I'm still in relation with, except for one um, who has passed away from this life. They invited me in, like they, for different reasons. Um, you know, I was interested in supporting particularly undocumented youth at this all migrant high school. And I had the resources to do that. I had that time. I had connections to agencies. Um, I was able to spend time with their families. Um, many cups of very strong coffee and sugary uh, companions um, to the sugary coffee. And we would talk about the risks and the potential benefits of going to a migration attorney. Um, and I had the time and the resources to know agencies and attorneys that would not take advantage of people. And that did something in the structure of the dispossession of these young people. So that's, that, that, that's one way in which I was able to be part of their lives. And you know, one of the things that the people have taught me, um, all, all people from many different ages and many different walks of life, if you will, um, to use that kind of ableist term, but very many different regions and very many different histories who have been attempted to be dispossessed of themselves. Teach me, I think teach us as us as um, like other people all the time. Like I'm not dispossessed. Yes, I've been harmed. There are bruises. There are marks that have been left. We've lost people, but that project of dispossession is incomplete. So I think that also loops back into the ways that you've so generously invited people and I and it seems to me also invited people in who are doing working on projects because they know this project of coloniality this project of dispossession is actually failing it's incomplete it leaves marks it's taken lives it's broken relation but not beyond repair it's incomplete as a project. I think that's that's one of the biggest lessons that that we get to learn anytime. Um, you know, if, if a person frames their work on dispossessed people, it's like that's not actually 
a population. There are attempts to dispossess. And there are some ways that that dispossession has traction. But there are also many, many constant failures of that dispossession. I love the emphasis on incompleteness. Um, and because of how it goes back to a concept at the center of your work that we started with, which is struggle, um, that there's no such thing as a, as a place or an institution that is completely won over. Um, there are always, always um, everywhere place a contestation conflict. And one of the things that I feel like I um, have really been on a journey with in my own teaching lately has been um, in a class that I teach called, that I co-teach with my, with my wonderful colleague, Dominique Gouvan, um, called Study and Struggle, um, which is built on the um, Mississippi-based anti-carceral abolition um, political education project um, that many of our heroes have been involved in. Um, one of the things that, that we are continually reminding ourselves, reminding our colleagues, reminding our student colleagues um, of is that association with Skidmore College or with um, an institution that they have decided is, and because it is part of a colonial project, part of a carceral project, is not a reason to not be in a struggle or is not a reason that you can't access um, sort of solidarity or sort of liberation, a liberation process. Um, and I think that I certainly have been in places in my own life where it's felt like, okay, like I'm so complicit, it's impossible to, it's impossible to divest or it's impossible to step into a different relationship to the resources at my disposal or the affiliations that I have. Um, and I, I mean, it's certainly, I associate that with, yeah, different, different moments in my own sort of intellectual and political development. I'm curious about how you address um, issues of complicity and questions about divestment from the institutions that frame our um, existence often and which that people who espouse radical politics may be dependent even if on even if they are a bank. How do you think about that in your pedagogy and approach that um, with your colleagues, with your students, with folks you're building with in the world? Thank you so much. Such a such a beautiful um, sharing of you know where you and and your colleague are and teaching a course called Study and Struggle and is this that fantastic anti carceral project. And so thank you for naming that. Um, so what I have a colleague and a friend, um, more importantly, a friend named Sabina Vaught, and she raised this example. I, mean, I don't know, a year and a half, it doesn't matter so much, but she said, like, we're, she's like, we're complicit. And she held up a glass of water and she's like, I have access to potable water. Millions upon millions of people at this moment do not have access to potable water. So I am part of a structure that creates this liminality, this precarious, precarious state of being for a while. 
and and sometimes for quite a stretch like i'm co i'm complicit in that because i'm i have access to potable water that access exists because of the lack of access that is created for millions of other people so i think that first and always is understanding that complicitness is there and, and that that is neither a place to build a house nor which to become defensive in. And that's often kind of the shorthand advice that I have for um, usually students who are understanding like, oh, um, in case it's the classroom when they first come to realize like, oh, my privilege is based upon somebody else's suffering, like privilege. Even when people say like, oh, you know, I, you know I'm, I I speak first as a settler. Like this happens more in Canada. I find this in Canada's a lot. You know, like I'm a white, so I identify as a white settler. Cool, cool. What does that mean for relations? Like, so I certainly, I'm, I'm a settler arriving, but I feel more deeply is what does that mean for how I am in relation to being a guest on a land, as many people are guests on, I am an uninvited guest on, my, on this land. What do I do with that? How do I try to bring some right back into that wrong relation? How do I learn from people whose land this is? How do I become involved with projects of rematriation? Don't know what rematriation is? Cool, let me form a study group and learn what that is. These are all ways, I think, of moving into motion rather than a, a, a statement of complicity. So my advice, and I think about like the, the beautiful piece that um, Teresa Stewart Ambo and Wayne Yang wrote about land acknowledgement statements, which are everywhere now. And I also remember Sandy Grande saying not too long ago, like that actually matters that land acknowledgement statements exist because they're also statements of settler colonial structure. When we when a land acknowledgement statement is read, that is also an acknowledgement, whether it's said explicitly or not, that is acknowledging there was theft, there was pillage, there was murder, and it was on purpose because it led to property. It tore and attempted to break permanently the relation between indigeneity and land. It has failed, it's incomplete. And that also, it acknowledges that violence. And so now what do we do with that? Um, so I so appreciate the question of, uh, of complicitness and what do we do with it? It's there all the time. How could it not be? There's hundreds, there's thousands and thousands of moments and years at the wind on our back when, when a, a person who's male appearing opens a door for a person who's maybe read as a woman and this second person says why are you holding this door open for me there are centuries happening in that moment they're both complicit what do we do with that hopefully this person who is read as male has some friends that they can go talk to and like i don't know what i did wrong but it really bothered this person i thought i was doing a nice thing Maybe hopefully they have people who have read some more history who have been taught some more history say like here's why that person didn't really appreciate that gesture yeah. So it's for me, it's all what, what do we do with it? Who do we turn to? And if I could just add in one more thing, I think that's also why I mentioned staying on nodding terms with previous versions of ourselves so that we 
remember that we didn't always know the thing that we know now. We don't, we don't actually cancel people. We may not have to personally do the political work with them, but I don't, I don't know an abolitionist who's able to do abolition if they're not well. Um, and I also don't know abolitionists who are fine with canceling. That's not a thing that exists in abolition. So we stay on nodding terms with our learning selves. I really appreciate uh, your discussion of the land acknowledgement statements. I've been really struggling with those. They seem, you know, as a cover up and, uh, you know, a way not to really go deep. So I appreciate that. I do have a question to um, lob on to the end of that. You, in one of your articles, you quote um, an article that I really like by Aaron Dottie Roy, um, the pandemic is a portal. Uh, where she talks about using the pandemic as a way to leave behind the, you know, the mess that we've, some of the mess that we've created or to reimagine it anew. And um, so I, before we get to our last question, I want to ask, because um, I thought of this today as I was reading uh, some further work of yours. Um, and this is from um, Mariam Kaba. Uh, this is kind of the um, uh, place where it comes from. How do you practice the discipline of hope? And you've told us a bit about that, but if you could speak more to that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you brought up Miriam Kaba. Um, there's uh, so much that Miriam Kaba does that is um, public pedagogy all the time and organizing all the time. It's it's in it's important to note that this is a person who refuses to have their face image on a on a video picture ever. Like, and there there's reasoning to that. Miriam Kaba, um, with their Twitter handle Prison Culture, does not allow things to be retweeted and, and requests that people do not like take screenshots or just copy what they have written and put that in a tweet. And part of the way I understand that is a request of like, please join in and please think about this rather than retweet. Um, and it's so deliberate. So hope as, as I continue to learn from Maria Kaba on, on literally a daily basis, Hope is a discipline, um, and that's a, that's a quotation that many people love uh, from Miriam. And Miriam expands on this from time to time. And hope is a discipline does not mean that, it definitely does not mean the kind of um, political platform that o Obama ran on with um, hope. It, it's not a Hallmark card, it's not a single message. It means that, it means leaning into that we don't exactly know how it will go when we try to create a structure that means better for more people. We don't actually know, but we lean into that not knowing in order to still do. And so the hope being a discipline is having a discipline of trying, 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 and the discipline of we don't exactly know how this is going to go because we do not come from a lived experience in most of our lifetimes of there being balance, equity, mutuality, wellness. 
We don't actually know that most of us in our lifetimes. So we're going to make mistakes and we lean into trying. We lean into uncertainty is the word that Miriam uses specifically. And I, I had been thinking about that and not saying it nearly as clearly or as eloquently or as poignantly, which is part of Miriam's pedagogy as well. I had been saying to myself and to students like, we've never really done this equity thing, at least since a European invasion on this land specifically, but also we can think about that more globally with the ways in which, as you brought up earlier, the ways that migrants, that's a particular, sure, that is a pulse point at the border, but the US is um, involved as an empire in destabilizing so many people globally so that there are, they become migrants fleeing. How we lean into action, not having ever as a nation assumed responsibility for this mass displacement of human beings. We've never really done that here on this land. Some collectives of human beings have. So how can we learn from them and not just try to reproduce what they've done, but learn from and learn across and lean into uncertainty, we will get things wrong, but that doesn't mean we stop. So that's also, I think, um, a good, maybe a good time to bring in how much I've learned from Ruth Wilson Gilmore as well, who says, um, you know, and whose, whose book is titled, we, we only have to change one thing, everything. Um, and I've been gently nudged. One time I, I shared a project that some students had done in a critical race theory class. Um, the 13th is a documentary had recently come out and they did an analysis of it and they augmented many of the points made in that documentary. I sent this link to Ruth Wilson Gilmore who I know just a bit. Ruth has not been a, a formal teacher of mine but has certainly been a, a teacher and educated presence. I learned constantly from how Ruth does things and how Ruthie talks about things. So I sent Ruthie this link and I'm like, hey, look at students in this cool kind of uh, message. And Ruthie gently and generously replied um, in tone. And, and in the replying said, I'm sure you sent this to me because you think there are some things that I might be interested in here. And I appreciate that. But what I'm talking about, what I'm trying to work on is, is much bigger. And it was just a gentle kind of, I experienced it as like a, um, one time I saw this older dog put its paw on the head of like a puppy who was really misbehaving. And I just, I experienced it as like, you can slow down a little bit and read some more of my stuff. It might help in terms of like what you think maybe I might've saw in there. And I just studied her work more and realized like, oh no, it's not just complimenting here and there how we understand a particular law to have held up carcerality is how we understand, for example, if we remove police from campuses, that there will still be surveillance. Like, how do we understand this as something that is a mindset, is a cultural practice, is in fact everywhere? So that feels appropriate to bring up in the ways that I've I've been gently nudged, like, thanks, and maybe learn some more about this. Yeah, I love that. The on, ongoing learning and it, making sort of exterior and how, yeah, it, it, we are we are works in progress. Um, yeah, we're going to get it wrong. 
Um, yeah, the totality is not in the wrong, nor in the complicit, nor in the right to proclaim, I know it all, none of it. Yeah. And after 34 years of, of teaching at Agnes Scott, I'm now rethinking how to do a syllabus this fall from what you said earlier. It's, it's, it's never ending. Yeah, that's the great, that's the wonderful, right? I would, I'm, I'm constantly saying like, I'm sorry, and you're welcome. <laughs> this is the good and the bad news. It's never no, ending. It's good. It's good it, it, to be pushed uh, towards something better. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So we're, we, we're over the time that we said we can keep talking for a little bit, but I am going to nudge us towards our penultimate question, which is very open-ended. Is there anything we haven't talked about, Lee, that you would like to that you would like to bring up? Anything we have talked about that you want to return to? Anything we should have raised, but we didn't? Any questions you want to ask us? Um, floor is open. Thank you. I love the that openness and that question that you invite everyone to as well. Um, I think that. I think a thing that we maybe we haven't touched on that feels like an important thing to talk about when we're talking about study and struggle. Um, Ed Ben's been written about so well by by so many, particularly you know, um, Robin Kelly, of course, um, Barbara Smith, um, uh, Beth Ritchie, Andrea Ritchie, um, and is a little bit of a a friendly. Um, Rod Ferguson, excuse me, is a, is a friendly gesture to students in particular who are coming into formation to make demands, to be a bit careful, to not demand the things that are quite easy for universities to do. It's actually not that hard for universities to hire, to do a cluster hire of Black faculty. It is incredibly hard for a university to not force out those Black faculty because it is an anti-Black racist environment. That is incredibly hard for a university to do. So I think that some of the things that um, those of us who have been, been able to be close to some student organizing, some student mobilizations and some student demands is, is to understand um, the historicity of demands and also, and to not be too nice in the, don't, don't make the demand so easy for the university to, to do because it will do it and it will claim um i think one of you put this so beautifully to me before we started speaking in the podcast it will claim its munificence as it as it says like look we gave you the thing that you asked for aren't we good no you're still an apparatus of the state so in the demand the historicity looking at previous demands and understanding what study it took to make those demands, what study it took to make the demand of open admissions from the City College of New York. And that demand coming from Black and Puerto Rican students who were the predominant population of that part of Harlem at that time. Um, that's, that's an impulse that I think is a good one to communicate and to say into the air now. And that, that is coupled with, please don't make demands that are a little too easy for the university to do, or making demands for things that don't actually exist. Um, I would argue safe spaces don't exist in appendages of the settler structure, settler colonial structure. 
we can create spaces that are resourced of Dr. Jennifer Mullen, um, who's a therapist and has studied decolonialism, talks about how we resource up as living beings and how we resource spaces. And to me, that feels um, qualitatively different than talking about safe spaces. So that, that feels important to, to bring up again and give some air to. Yeah, I feel like I like the don't don't make the demands too easy. I feel like as the let like the complement to that is don't demand more policing and carceral systems. Don't demand more punishment. Don't demand more surveillance. Um, one of the things, and you know, not just yeah, not and not just students, but us, our colleagues, um, really studying to see if, okay, does, is demanding harsher punishment for people who perpetrate racist violence in explicit ways on campus, is that is that good for an anti-racist project broadly? Um, right. wh where does punishment fit into this and how do we think about, um, how do we think about undermining that entire apparatus rather than um, reinforcing it so that people whose violence rises to the top as the most explicit and the most easily scapegoated and the most sort of um, available as the counterpoint so that the institution can perform a kind of beneficence. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. How do we keep ourselves away out of that that sort of seduction um, by demanding not just or not demanding not um, more carceral responses, but an end to them and something else and grow our imaginations, which, yeah. of course, is a much harder demand. It's really easy for uh, much a university to punish somebody um, less easy right. to do something. Right. Right, if a person, a person who has some visibility in the university publicly says something that is largely understood to be an expression of violent oppression, um, let's pick one, or usually there are several um, because they're all intertwined. It's a relatively easy thing to remove that person, like, like, like as is done by the networks and by different media, like we've removed that person from the show three like so what does that actually do to interrupt anti-semitism as an ongoing project like what does it actually do as you were saying Lisa, like if the answer is public shaming that's actually a project of the identity and the branding of the institution so in the demands that that you know could be so powerful if they were also intergenerational which they have been on time that that protest by um, the residents uh, around City College then joined by then young poets, Adrian Rich and June Jordan, like they have been in intergenerational and it's really wonderful when they are. It would be great if our demands were so material in nature that the university actually had to make some material changes and that those changes we know in a, in a I guess in a sense of, a sense of surveillance, but in a sense that I think of like stewarding, it's like, and we know intergenerationally, if we make a demand, then generationally, the younger generations to come, like you need to steward what they do with that demand because they're going to turn it back into something 
that is good for the for their branding. So there, that's also an opportunity of like, let's make demands that are not so easy. Let's make the intergenerational demands so that we raise up the people who are coming up to know like, we've made this demand, they met it, they're probably going to turn it into a mechanism to actually punish those people hired other under an ethnic studies department that beforehand didn't exist. Would you please help steward the demand? I hate to bring this to a close. This is so wonderful, Lee Patel. Thank you for being with us on the podcast and, and helping us connect a lot of um, dots that we've been making over the years um, and sparking us to think in new ways about our own classes and the structures of oppression that we work in. Um, so last question, uh, what are we reading, consuming, thinking about, watching, listening to, uh, that we would like to share uh, with our listeners. So Lee, why don't you start us off? Okay. I so appreciated knowing this question in advance too, because I had to have to feel like, what have I been? Um, so um, somewhat by choice and somewhat by gift of being with my mom, I, I do catch a little bit of Days of Our Lives um, every weekday. I am amazed at who is still on this show. Like, I'm like, but they won't let that person retire or die. Like Marlena is still on this show. Okay. Um, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune with my mom, that, that, that marks a certain time of the evening. I just finished watching Reservation Dogs and I'm going to really miss it. Um, I already have been re-watching it. I've been listening to Finding Our Way, that podcast hosted by Prentice Hemphill. Um, that has been a nourishing podcast um, over quite some time. I've been reading abolitionist geography notes by before mentioned wonderful Ruthie Wilson Gilmore. I have been rereading We Do This Till We Free Us by Marian Kaba. Um, and I follow Marian, I, I follow prison culture um, tweets as much as I can. I. I've been rereading Troublemakers by Carla Shalapi um, as a beautiful book that teaches lessons about freedom from young people. And, and Carla is one of the most gifted writers. And if I didn't love her so much, I would hate her. She's such a good writer. Um, so that's that's a book I've been really enjoying returning to. And I I guess I've just been returning to those things out of um as much as I love cooking, it's, it's, it's akin to that feeling. It's like, let me return to some things. Let me cook some food. Um, it's nourishing. So, yes. Yeah. What have you all been reading, listening to? Okay, oh. Lucia. I just heard an, uh, an update on Brittany Griner. So if you would bring us up to date. I don't know the update. Oh, it's, just, right it's just the trial. That, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, more on the trial from NPR. It was on NPR about an hour ago. Free Brittany Griner. I'm watching the WNBA, as I always say on this podcast. Um, go Chicago Sky. Um, Candace Parker forever. You know, um, so that's my life right now. Um, uh, let's see, what else? I'm reading two books. Um, one of the books I'm reading in the more like 
fluff category is this book by uh, Christine Smallwood called Life of the Mind, which is one of the many academic satires. And parts of it, I feel I find a little bit heavy handed, but there is this scene in Las Vegas where the contingently employed academic is like mindlessly playing the slots and her celebrity um, narcissistic ex-advisor comes and like, <laughs> does some fake caretaking of her in like the most toxic way possible that just like nail they didn't nail so many dynamics um i need to give my father credit for gifting me this book um and saying you need to stop what you're doing right now and turn to the las vegas section I'm like i don't know when where the las vegas section is dad so but i finally got to it um Anyway, it's called Life of the Mind by Christine Smallwood. Um, and then, you know, honestly, the book that I've been staying up until like one in the morning reading is um, is uh, Raising Expectations, My Decade Fighting for the Labor, Labor Movement by Jane McAlevey. And um, her more recent book is No Shortcuts, and it's kind of a handbook for organizing. Um, but it basically, it, it's, it's a refreshing book to read on the labor movement um, because it dispenses with the um, gruesome wisdom in quotation marks that if you're part of a movement, you can't critique its internal structures. Um, and so she talks about how in, um, sort of in SEIU um, and in other sort of parts of the labor movement, there's a like toxic hierarchy, masculinity, and how good organizing requires um, a community-based whole worker model um, that is that is able to be engaged in a process of constant critique of its own limitations um, and sort of imagination of new possibilities with community of intellectuals at the grassroots who are everywhere, who are workers, who are um, who are the builders of movements. Um, so I've been uh, I've and she has a really like fun voice and clearly likes to dish about drama. So like it scratches that itch as well. Um, you know, maybe less of a good movement practice, but whatever. Um, I'm really into this book right now. Those are my two. Tina, your turn. Okay, I've got one. Uh, I want to recommend this film. It's a French film. It's called Big Bug, all one word. And the director is Jean-Pierre Junet, uh, the director of Amélie, and Delicatessen and other oddities and visually stunning. It's a sci-fi uh, film about uh, a suburban um, family and other relations come into this house and they have robots and cyborgs. And I think Donna Haraway is having a field day <laughs> and oh, well, Zizek too, probably. Um, and it's uh, a French farce but it's also a commentary on technology and authoritarianism. And it's just a lot of fun. So just, the film um, is Big Bug and it's on Netflix right now. I just Googled it and the uh, IMDB blurb is suburbanites are locked in for their own protection by their household robots while an Android revolt rages outside. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that's my highbrow offering to our <laughs> listen, and then pair it with the brave little toaster. Right, <laughs> excellent. Oh, 
I've been saying like when Siri and Alexa, when these two start talking to each other, humans have like two days left because of Terminator 2 taught me. <laughs> yes. Yes. Love so here we thank you for helping us um, uh, stop the apocalypse, Lee, and <laughs> all, your, all your good work. And thank you for being on our podcast today. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. Our fabulous audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our theme music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music is by Acrasis. It's called Hysterical Blindness, and it's on Children Singing in Hell on Bandcamp.com. Beats and Trumpet by Mark McKee and Raps and Guitar by Max Bowen. After nearly five years, really over five years now, of running the Radical Pedagogy Podcast as a mostly self-funded operation, we've decided to open up opportunities for our listeners to support our work. Your donations will help cover the cost of maintaining our website and streaming services, as well as pay for our amazing audio editors and student interns. Thank you in advance for your encouragement and support as we've taken this journey together. So look for us on Patreon.com. Thank you for listening. Sounds ugly from far away, you may mistake it for a cry of longing. 
flightless biped dragging these useless long wings Then I hear the birds sing and remember that there are worse things Sometimes I feel like a basket about moaning Evolutionary artifacts passed with mourning The death of nature at human hands Robocops come arrest my still beating cardiac Breaking too much sometimes But this isn't party rap This is hardly rap I wrote this on my iPhone on a bar stool wearing a dunce cap Dead-eyed lap dogs laughing blood out their owner's skulls and not looking back, turning back into an animal innocent insofar as I've dehumanized the fact that I can't say this shit. Looking straight into your eyes makes me think that it might just be a pack of stupid lies. Will be our tomb.